Hello and welcome to Living Hope. This is Pastor Staten, and I want to welcome everybody that is joining us today. A shout out to our E family, all of you that are joining us through the internet. I want to remind you every Sunday morning at 11 o'clock, you can join us live at tv.livinghopemd.com. I pray that today's message blesses you and that you enjoy the word as it is shared today. I'm so lost to be found, and I know it's in my mind. Amen. Turn to someone near you. Smile at them. Even if you don't want to be here, make them believe that you do. That book I read one time, I don't recommend the book. The name of the book was Fake It Till You Make It. I guess there's an opportunity, Brother Matt, I feel like I'm in a box. I got some reverberation here. You can take care of that. I would like to turn your attention to the book of Matthew. Several of you have asked me, when are you going to finish those lessons on Beatitudes? Well, it has affected my attitude that I haven't been able to for, I think the last lesson in Beatitudes was the end of January, and, um, and we've been talking about the challenges, and I'm not convinced that I'll finish the challenges today, but I'm going to try. How's that? But I promised myself that I would not be in a hurry with this, this series of lessons, and certainly that has been the case, not necessarily because I've been teaching too long, but so different distractions and interruptions and things that have brought me out of the pulpit. But I am very, very much pleased with the young men who have stepped in in my stead and done a tremendous job teaching. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 2, we're going to read one additional verse today, verse 11. Jesus, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of, God, kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11 is a new verse that we haven't looked at, and we're hoping to get to it today at some point. Blessed are ye, or blessed are you, when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Anybody need a blessing this morning? Amen. Okay, let's hope you feel the same way in a little bit. Lift a hand with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for a beautiful day, an opportunity to come into your presence. We pray the word of God would touch every heart, every life, every circumstance. Challenge us today, Father. I pray, God, in my spirit, in my heart, in my mind, that your word would continue to challenge us, Lord. Help us to have the right perspective, the right attitude, Lord. In Jesus' name, we pray for everything that we do today. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen, amen. Um, God bless you. You can be seated. Just as a little bit of a recap, it has been uh, probably five weeks, maybe six weeks since I taught the last lesson. We talked about the Beatitudes present us as followers with both a challenge and a promise. Now, I promise, at least it is my intention, to at some point talk about the promises. So far, I've just talked about the challenges. We discussed how the idea of blessing or the blessed that the King James renders it means or expresses the idea of maturity, of completion. And so we find that completion and maturity in the Scripture are synonymous ideas. If I said to you, have a blessed day, you would not think, I'm telling you, have a mature day. But in the teaching, as we dig into the Greek here, that idea comes forth that it's not just where we think we're going to get something, it's what the, we are something. And so there is a blessing in your maturity or a blessing in being, compete, being complete. And so being mature is hard work. How many would agree with that? Amen. Amen? All right. Uh, and, and if you don't think so, you're probably not there yet. Uh, so maturity begins with having or possessing and maintaining a right attitude, which is one of the most difficult things at times to have, and at other times it's the most difficult thing to maintain. Anybody ever had a good attitude and something changed? 
Hello? And you found that maintaining the attitude, you know, you got up on the right side of the bed, you found some time to pray, you got in tune with the Lord, and somebody who looked like the devil, the person, well, at least in my mind, changed that. And so I found that maintaining my mature attitude was difficult to do. Uh, and it got into a, an immature discussion, some finger pointing and some waving and some other things that we won't go into. And it probably ended up with a uh-uh. I don't know. So, but in life, we, we have to achieve some level of maturity. We've, we've got to have the right perspective and we've got to have the correct attitude about things. And I believe it's especially so for us as the people of God. We've got to have the right attitude and the perspective concerning our world. I think the, the, the things that we've gone through as a country have affected us as a church, our perspective, our attitude. And so I, I believe that the timeliness of this series is helping us as a church to make sure I've got a right perspective, a right attitude about the things that are going on in the world around me. Amen? I'm not a citizen of this world. Well, what do you mean? You know, you're born in America, you're American, right? My citizenship is in heaven, right? We're, hopefully we'll talk some about that. And so the, the Beatitudes are about acquiring the right perspective, the right attitude toward God about myself and about others. Those are the three things that we talked about. And so Jesus gives us these eight interrelated qualities. No one single attitude or one single perspective stands alone, but they are character traits. They are progressive, each one seemingly building upon the next one. And so we talked about how that these are, they are paradoxical views and they, they represent perspectives that are many times in complete opposition to the world's view. And so what we find ourselves, we have the difficulty, is that we have a worldly perspective, but we also must have a godly perspective, right? And sometimes the worldly perspective interferes with our godly perspective. I find that in my life that I, I don't have nearly as much interference from the godly perspective and the worldly perspective as I do the worldly... Anybody? Right? There's Sister Angelita. We were looking for you. Good morning, sunshine. Glad you made it. I told you, I told you, Calvin, I said, I got, I've, just got to, I've just got to pick on Angelina today. I, I missed that, all right? So we talked about the poor in spirit, all right? And, you know, uh, those are those that feel that deep sense of spiritual destitution, people who comprehend their complete inability to please God, a sense of nothingness before God. In our world today, a lot of people do not understand just how great, how desperate their need of God truly is. But when you learn to walk with him, you will come to an understanding that without Jesus, I can do nothing, right? Absolutely nothing. I'm destitute. I'm helpless. Jesus said it this way in John 15 and 5, apart from me or without me, you can do nothing. Amen. I heard a preacher one time say the, great, the correct interpretation of the word nothing is not one thing. Amen. We can come in today and do all we want to in the house of God, but without the presence of God, it's not going to be effective. We will not accomplish one thing. Amen. So the poor in spirit, trust in repentance. They trust that repentance is the gift of God. It's not something that's owed to them. The poor in spirit are exemplified by the publican that Jesus taught, taught about who would not even so much as lift his eyes, but he would smote his chest and would confess to God that he was a sinner in desperate need of mercy. That was the attitude that we talked about. And then we talked about those that are blessed in mourning. Blessed are they that mourn, right? And that blessing is not just for anyone who mourns, certainly our God is a comforter to everyone who mourns, but specifically, this is a mourning over sin. Paul wrote to the church in Corinthians, or at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 7 and 10, that godly sorrow worketh repentance that leads to salvation, right? And that's the, that's the sorrow, right? The, the worldly sorrow brings death, but godly sorrow brings a change. And so that change, that real repentance doesn't happen just in the physical realm, but it happens in the spiritual realm. It changes your attitude about sin. It changes your attitude, your perspective, right? I, you know, I, I, we, were, we were all come from different backgrounds and we were taught different things. Hopefully the perspective that you've received from the word of God is changing how you feel about things, right? And so this beatitude, this attitude has a, a double sorrow. It's not just for the sorrow over my sin or over your sin, but it's upon the sin of the world. We should be affected. 
Our attitude, our perspective should be affected by the regardless, the, the, the disregard for sin in our world, right? The world around us celebrates sin. It flaunts it even. It even dares God to do something about it. And the apostle Peter wrote this, that God once winked at ignorance, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. And so we, as the church, we, we, cannot, we, we should not be participators. We should not be celebratory, celebratory of the sin of our world, but we should be condemning of that. doesn't mean we have to be jerks about it and tell everybody they're wrong, but it should. We cannot, you know, coexist with the sin of the world. Amen? We have called out of darkness into light. And, and so the perspective is this, from the Word of God, that God hates all sin. He does not hate the sinner, but he hates sin, even your little precious pet sin, yeah. right? And so mature people, complete people, blessed people share God's perspective on sin. And so we've got to share his attitude, not just about the, the negativity of sin, but how about the perspective of holiness, I find a lot of people are like, yeah, that's, that's horrible, that's sin, and, and they're easy to condemn people, but they don't have the same regard that God has for holiness. Amen? I'm talking to us as the church that sometimes those, the, we've got we've to make sure that we're sharing the perspective that God has. God is a holy God. No sin can dwell in his presence. Well, God understands. That's a lie from the pit. Maybe created from, by humanity, or if not created by humanity, propagated by humanity because we want to feel good about ourselves. God understands. Absolutely he understands. But he also created a way for you to come. Come on, come now and let us reason together, right? Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. There's a, there's a shout. There's somebody's got to do something there. And so my attitude, your attitude, our perspective has to change. We talked about the, 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 the meek, the blessed are the meek, the, the humble of spirit. The Bible teaches that God's presence is drawn to humility, but it runs, it flees from pride. And so meekness was a specific attitude of the heart. The primary principle of meekness is that the meek, and this is difficult for us in our day and age, the meek would rather suffer injury than inflict it. You know, I, I don't know, it's kind of been my, 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 my perspective for many years, you know. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, but Jeff's going to get just a little bit. That's not meekness, in case you're wondering, right? That's wanting to inflict a little bit of that. And for every human person, that's a nat, understand, that's a natural thing for us, right? And so the, the meek, they live, the world looks at meekness as weakness, but, but really it's truly a spirit, a humble spirit. And so we, we looked into Scripture and we measured our meekness against Moses. Moses, according to the Bible, was the meekest man on the earth when he was attacked. How's, how's your attitude? How's your perspective? When he was attacked, Moses did not react. Moses did not fight back. Moses did not even respond, but he was mature. His blessing was that he allowed the Lord to fight for him, right? The Old Testament, you know, we read over and over, right? You know, you know, uh, you know the, the, where people were told to hold their peace and let the Lord fight their battle. I find that to be difficult. If you don't, you're a better person than me by way far, right? And so meekness in Scripture is equated to a quiet spirit. Nothing in 2021 seems to be very quiet to me. I'm going to go on record, right? And so we want to live a life void of pride and arrogance, but that is much easier said than done. But it's possible when we have the right attitude, the right perspective toward God about ourselves and about others. And so those are those first three, those roots of a blessed life, that poor in spirit, a life that mourns over sin, an attitude of meekness. We progress to blessed are the hungry. Uh, the, right? They, they hunger and thirst after righteousness. They shall be filled. But this is not just a blessing for those that don't have enough. This is a blessing upon those who are hungry and thirsty for the righteousness of God rather than the righteousness of self or the righteousness of humanity. They are actively looking. They are actively searching for the righteousness that will meet the needs of their spiritual poverty. And so this attitude we saw exemplified by a strong desire to be in God's presence. I think this speaks very 
very uh, illuminately to the church. We need to understand this. That sometimes we come to church out of obligation, but David, David, David had an intense desire to be in the presence of God. His perspective, his attitude was not when should I come, but when can I come. There was, there was a difference in perspective, and, and so we talked about this. We talked about it matters how you come. We spent some time on that, right? God's presence is an opportunity. It's never an obligation. Oh, we got to go to church. Oh, we got to go to prayer. Oh, we got to. That's the wrong perspective. But mature people are hungry. They're thirsty for those things. That's, that's the right attitude. That, that casual approach to God brings about what the book of Revelation called a, a lukewarm spirit. There's a spewing out where God hates that casual approach. And so it's my, it's my job to, if I'm going to mature, if I'm going to be the man that God wants me to be, if you're going to be the person that God wants you to be, that has to come. That has to be something. It's not automatic. It doesn't happen overnight, but you have to develop that. You have to encourage that. You have to work on that and get that right perspective so that it's not an obligation. It's an opportunity. The fifth challenge was mercy, and specifically, we talked about the giving and receiving of mercy. Mercy, I told you, is withholding punishment that could even be deserved. And so nowhere in life do we as humanity imitate God more than when we show someone mercy, because mercy is always a choice. And so I want to have mercy because I know for certain that at some point, sooner probably rather than later, I will need some mercy. And so mercy is the ultimate sign of maturity, showing compassion, showing kindness when you have the power and even the right to punish or to harm someone. And so I, I gave you two specific things about mercy. First one, the first one was that's counterculture to our world was that mercy involves itself. Mercy enters itself into the pain, the misery, and the sufferings of his neighbor, right? It doesn't just feel for them. It becomes active. And I told you, my humanity is like, man, I'm sorry. That looks bad. I'm, but I'm backing away the whole time. But real mercy, the mercy of Jesus Christ, robed himself in flesh and involved himself in my misery, in your misery, and our suffering, right? And so that's the, that exemplifies it. The mercy of the good Samaritan does not pass someone by. But it stops and involves and invests itself in the recovery of people. And that's really, that's a, that's a mature perspective. Oh, I'm praying for you, but no, no, real, real mercy involves itself. The second one is that mercy is obtainable. It's simply where we have the opportunity to, to go into God's presence and pick up mercy. That's a great attribute of God. But in maturity, my Christ-like attitude, I've got to have the same type of mercy that God has. What does that mean? That means as a mature person, I've got to be forgivable. I've got to, be, I've got to have a, a leniency towards others. I've got to say, you know what, my mercy is just as, available, just as available as God's. You can come to me and I, you can have an expectation that my mercy is obtainable. I'm not going to make you work for it. I'm not going to make you justify it. Why? Because if I don't give mercy, I can't receive mercy. Amen. Sorry, I'm going a little fast. I'm trying to recap before I, I get into this a little bit deeper. The sixth challenge was to be pure in heart. The pure in heart had a single focus. Their love was not divided. They did not love the things of the world and God too. But that purity of heart, that attitude is seen in mature people where they check their own heart. They challenge their own attitude. They question their own motives. That's hard. That's difficult, right? It's easy for me to question your, your motive. It's easy for me to question your attitude or your heart, but when I begin to challenge my own, remember this attitude comes, it begins as a feeling, right? And so does what I think, what I feel, how, how I think, does it line up with what Jesus thinks, what the Word of God wants me to feel? Does my perspective and my attitude fall in line with the Word of God? This is a difficult place. These are not easy these are not easy lessons. These are for mature people. And so that purity of heart consisted of three specific things, sincerity, honesty, and a lack of hypocrisy. And I, I would, uh, just my perspective of thinking of a lot of the people that, that I know, I could see two of those in most lives, but in, in, in most people that I thought of, I wasn't sure about a third. Hello? I, I, I express that, right? I think there's a, a little bit of a hypocrite in, in all of us, if we're being honest, right? If we'd be honest, right? There, sometimes we're not as sincere as we maybe should be. Sometimes we're not as honest, and sometimes I'm thankful that you're not as honest. 
not being mean. I just sometimes I don't need to know, don't want to know. But hypocrisy and and deceit are offensive to the pure in heart. And a lot of people, they talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. And then finally, we got to the seventh challenge, which was to be a, a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers. Mature people prefer peace over chaos. Can I get an amen? Amen. Immature people tend to be creators of chaos. They create turmoil and constant noise and churn, amen? And so they they stick out like a sore thumb, right? So Jesus is the the model peacemaker. He, according to the word of God, is the prince of peace. And so I told you that peacemaking was a divine work and that God is the author of peace. That's what the Bible says. And so one of the most important pieces or one of the most important works of Calvary is peace. Paul wrote to the church at Colossians and said, uh, talking about Jesus Christ in chapter 1, verse 20, he said, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And so we need to understand that the, the Bible challenges us as followers to imitate him and to share his mission of peacemaking on the earth. How, how do we do that, right? He's given us, the, he's committed unto us a word of reconciliation. The greatest need of peace on our earth is not peace between nations, it's, between, it's, it's the peace between humanity and an almighty God, Amen. right? We can have great uh, accord between nations and have a lack of war, but that's not real peace. Real peace comes when people get things settled with God. Right. If the whole world were saved, we wouldn't need those peace agreements. That's a little bit deep, amen, for a Sunday morning, Right? And so I told you that peacemakers are not, they're not appeasers of parties, but that, that, that we talked a little bit about the, pre, the peace at any price mentality is not a biblical principle. That is, that's a dominant spirit in our world. It's called the spirit of accommodation. Uh, Brother Trey, one day, maybe you or I can teach a lesson on the spirit of accommodation. Accommodation wants to make room for everybody and everything. Uh, you, you're, not, you're not in the word if you're making room for everybody. Our world wants us to accept alternative lifestyles because they want peace, right? They don't want, listen, understand, listen, this word does not make room for alternative lifestyles. And so peacemakers is not the absence of conflict, right? But really peacemakers is the one who, who, is, who is described as someone who's actively pursuing the peace that comes through relationship with Jesus Christ. And so peacemakers are producing right relationships in every sphere of life. They're not accommodating everything. It's, that's a difficult balance in our life, right? And so I would say this this morning, that if your spirit or your attitude is constantly at odds with the people around you and everything around you, you're likely not a peacemaker. You've not achieved that level of maturity to be a peacemaker. And so Jesus, I told you, did not pl- pronounce his blessing on the peace wishers, the peace hopers, the peace dreamers, the peace lovers, or even the peace talkers but the real peace that comes from the cross. I want to begin this morning by making one last point about peace. Jesus pronounces a blessing in the next beatitude that we haven't quite started yet on being persecuted, but there is a a point that I want to bring that kind of will lead us into that particular beatitude John chapter 3, verse 17 says it this way. He says, the wisdom that is from above, or the wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable. And so there's a, a scriptural principle that I want, I feel like it's necessary to add to the, the peacemaker ideology is this, that first purity and then peace and not the other way around. See, the world's perspective is that if we get peace, then we can have purity. That is not a scriptural mandate. Pastor James clearly subordinates the goal of peace to the goal of righteousness. And so we need to understand that the order that we have in the, in the Beatitudes is blessed are the pure in heart, and then it comes blessed are the peacemakers. Why? Because we, 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 we will, some people would pursue peace at all costs. I can live a little bit of that as long as I have peace. But we've got to understand that according to the Word of God, Peace is not something that comes by the work of humanity, but peace only comes through the blood because Hebrews 9 and 22 said, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. 
And so if we're not careful, we can overbalance one of these two ideologies here, and we can say, I, I'll, it's all, the, the, the church world has done this. It's all God is love, God is love, God is love, and God is love, but that's out of balance. God also is a God of judgment. Well, Brother Roberts, it's Sunday morning, it's, you know, we just came through a nice warm spell, and so you probably shouldn't be talking about judgment, you know I mean? Judge not lest you be judged, brother. But the truth is there's, there's got to be a balance, and real peace brings balance into your life that, yes, I'm guilty of the blood of Jesus Christ, but in order to make peace, I've got to accept the shed blood of Calvary on my life. I'm not going to, you're not going to, we're not going to have peace in any relationship without the blood. I know the world shines it on and says, oh, you know, we get along great, da, 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 da. Okay, great. There's not real peace there without the blood. Because the principle in Scripture is that, that purity comes before peace. And so there has to be an element of trust. There has to be holiness that brings about. Because why? Because sin cannot enter into the presence of a pure God. It will not. It cannot. And so there has to be that purity that comes. There has to be the application of the blood in order to have peace in the relationship, not the other way around. And so purity is always on the basis, always the basis of biblical of peace. But pur purity cannot be compromised in order to make peace. And so we've learned from these previous beatitudes that our behavior is almost always a direct reflection of our attitude. Amen. And so attitude is a reflection of, of how I think or how I feel about something. It becomes a heart issue. And so when the heart is full of selfishness or greed or envy or pride or anger, it's really difficult, if not impossible, to be a peacemaker. And so that brings us into this challenging, challenging place because I think there's a lot of people who really want peace, but very few people actually live, in a, live or behave in a way that facilitates peace. Because it's countercultural. And so this eighth beatitude or this eighth challenge that I want to touch base on this morning says, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. I began to look at this particular passage and trying to dig through the scripture and find here. I looked first in the tense that this was said in many times. If you, uh, how many of you know you can say something and how you say it makes a difference? Yeah. Right? So in the Greek, this verb is a, a passive perfect tense. What does that mean? It indicates that it should be regarded as something that is permissive. And so I, I think I discussed this when I started this series sometime back in early January. Blessed are they which allow themselves to be persecuted. And I, I, I confess to you that I had a really difficult time with that. And I'm not going to say that I don't have a difficult time with it now, but the, the perspective from Scripture is that they had allowed themselves to be persecuted. They willingly endured some level of persecution. So the main idea here is that they didn't run from it, but they willingly submitted themselves to a level of persecution when it came to them. Now, this beatitude is the only one of the eight that comes with an explanation. We found that explanation in verse 11 when Jesus said, if you're or when you're blessed with persecution, you're going to be reviled. When you're reviled, you're going to be criticized, you're going to be insulted, you're going to be condemned. We're talking about uh, an onslaught of verbal attacks. Anybody just loves those things? Right? I, I mean, they're just right below the your mama jokes. And, and, and nobody, nobody likes that. Nobody appreciates that, right? When you were a kid, somebody made fun of your mama? We're going to go in here. We're going to break it down. You know, it was okay if I made fun of your mama, but you better not make fun of my mama. Are there three people in here that would? Come on, you. you Brother James, thank you. The rest of you people are like, not me. I'm so perfect. I don't. Liar, liar. Your pants are on fire. He said you're going to be reproached. That means that other people are going to express disapproval or dis dissatisfaction about you. That's, that's hard. That's difficult for someone. How many of you just like to be corrected? I, I'm still looking. Brother Eric, I don't believe you. 
How, how many of that? But the, the last part is persecution. That's how you're treated. But our world is all about how you treat everybody now, right? All you. Come on. Somebody's offended about everything. All right? You know? Anybody like, you know, you, you walk in, you, you walk in, you feel like you're walking on eggshells, you're afraid you're going to crack. That's the whole, right? He, Jesus said you're going to be slandered. You're going to be falsely accused, right? And so this persecution can show itself in many ways. It can be physical. It can be verbal. It can be life-threatening. It can be all of those different things. It can be people mocking you or marginalizing you or insulting you, all because you have faith in Jesus Christ. Now, it can come in a lot of other different ways, but here's what I know from the Bible. It's going to come. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Some of you should underline this in your Bible because I'm telling you some people in this room are not going to like this lesson. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Shall, will, it's going to happen. But Lord, I, I don't like that. I don't want that, right? And so, you know, I mean, that's, that's not a promise that we claim, but that's a promise from the Bible. When was the last time that you asked for that promise to be? Pastor didn't lead that in prayer service last night. He didn't say, let's all pray for persecution tomorrow, right? No, we, we claim the promises of protection. We claim, claim the promises of provision, but we don't claim the promise of persecution, and, you know, Lord, I, I know you promised that, that if I live a godly life, I'll be persecuted. So, God, I think it's time. Just bring it on now. <laughs> Said no one anywhere, anytime, ever. Right? And, and so I, I kind of stepped back from that a little bit. And I said, okay, so what does it mean to be persecuted when Jesus says it for righteousness' sakes? I, I'm going to tell you like this. All persecution is not equal, and I could spend a lot of time here, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to. My point is you can be persecuted for the wrong reason, or you can be persecuted for the right reason. Jesus did not say, blessed are those that are persecuted for being obnoxious. Jesus did not say, Jesus did not say, you're blessed when you act like an idiot. He didn't say that. There's no, there's no blessing in that. All right? It doesn't, he didn't say you're blessed when you're acting mean, when you're acting out of character. He didn't say, you know, right? But he said there's a blessing in those that are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So a little study of that. The, the first thing that popped into my mind were those Hebrew boys back in the book of Daniel. They were persecuted for what they believed. Jesus Christ was persecuted for who he was. And the early church was persecuted for both. What they were, who they were, and what they believed. And so if I'm going to be persecuted, and according to the Bible I'm going to be, I want to be persecuted for who I am and what I believe. Amen. Now I, listen, we live in a politicized society. And right now, I mean... Listen, if you want to befriend me on Facebook, I would maybe consider it, and maybe not. I just not, that's not my cup of tea. I don't want you posting anything on my page, so don't get offended if I don't like you on Facebook. Get over it. I don't do Twitter or TikTok or none of that other junk. I don't know what it is. Don't do it. Don't care. Don't get it. But don't ask. If you want to be my friend on Facebook, fine. But I don't want you politicizing. I'm telling you, family members, boop, gone. I'm not going to listen to that mess. Not going to get in it, right? But if I'm going to, I'm not, I'm not trying to win the world through Facebook. Maybe you are. Go have fun. I'm not going to do it. Not my cup of, thank you, Sister Lawrence. I appreciate that. Somebody's with me all like, oh, my, you're stuck in the mud. I'm, I'm going to get out of that mud. But they, listen to me, they were not persecuted for their opinions. They were persecuted for what they stood for. And so what should my response be to persecution? Let me give you some very quick, very simple principles. The, those three Hebrew boys were persecuted for the sake of righteousness. First, they were, they were, the, the principle is they were, they were, these young people were completely unintimidated. I want to be persecuted because I'm not intimidated by the voice of this world that says, you know, what, tells me what I can and can't do in the realm of spirituality. Right? They were, in, they were unintimidated. Over and over, the Bible commands us to not be afraid. 
I don't want to be persecuted because I have fear. I don't want to be, I don't want to be slandered because I have fear, but I want to, I want to be able to stand. I, want to, I, I need to know who I am. But if I followed these beatitudes and become that stepped on right, I, I followed each of these seven steps to this eighth place, I believe that I can be mature enough to be the kind of person who could even maybe willingly accept persecution for the right reason. Now, I'm telling you, don't complain if you go out there and act like an idiot somewhere and, and get in a big row somewhere and you've, you know, you, right? Remember that? I remember years ago, Pastor, we had a testimony service. And one of the reasons we stopped to testimony, I don't remember, you're probably a young man. We had a sister in the church and she stood up and Bishop was there and she said, she said, Pastor, will you pray for my boys? I remember this clear as day. My wife will tell you. She said, please pray for my boys. Them two boys are dumb. That's a pretty good prayer request. And she continued. She said, they attacked some man down at the 7-Eleven with a bat, and he took the bat from them and beat them both up, put them in the hospital. <laughs> Testimony service in a church is a scary thing. <laughs> I'm like, oh, Lord, please pray for them. Listen, that's not persecution. That's just desserts. You went after the man at the 7-Eleven with a baseball bat and he took it away from you and whipped you? Come on. Don't ask God to intervene in that. It's the school of hard knocks. Right? But we cannot be intimidated by the world for what we believe. And if persecution comes... Because I am a one God apostolic believer in the power of Jesus Christ, then it's going to have to come. And I do think I can willingly accept that because that's what I believe. I'm not going to let the world intimidate me to believe something other than what's in this book. Now you have to come to that place of maturity. If, 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 I'm, if I'm slandered for that, then that's a good cause. But if I'm slandered for some other reason, that's not righteousness sake. If I'm slandered because I've done something illegal or immoral or something wrong, that that's on me. That's really not, that's not the same thing. You understand, right? And so they, these, these young men, they were not unkind. They were not disrespectful. But they stood for what they believed. The second principle is they rested in God's power, in God's power alone. They told the king, they said, our, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us, Right? No earthly king compares to God's power. And so they, they, that, that maturity was they trusted in God, the creator of heaven and earth, to speak into he is a powerful God. And, and I'm not going to be intimidated. If I'm, going to be, if, I, if I'm going to be criticized or slandered or talked about or backbited or treated badly because I believe what this book says, so be it. I'm good with that. Amen. I can handle that. I'm all right with that. Makes sense, right? The third one was they were committed to God. Now, I'm, I'm going to tell you, they refused. They refused to, to bow down to the Babylonian idol. They, their faith was unshakable. And persecution will test your commitment. Tell your neighbor, it'll test it. People will, I, I think I've told this story, I'm not sure how long ago. I was, on, I was overseas on deployment, and um, I, I, some folks didn't like me. Um, I know you find that hard to believe. <laughs> I was in the Navy. I was a young man. I was in the Azores, and um, uh, there was a lot of stuff going on with it, but everybody, they were, they, everybody in the entire place was drinking nonstop except for me, right? And I, I, wasn't, I wasn't rude. I didn't, didn't, I didn't care. It was what they were doing. It wasn't what I was doing. But I, I was a ship supervisor, and there was a couple people that didn't like the decisions I made, and Listen, when you're right, when you got to lead, everybody ain't going to like what you got to say. But I remember one night I was laying in bed and the party was going on till late in the morning and I was having difficult sleep. And I heard, it was like, like I could just all of a sudden hear into the room across the hall and they were just shredding me. I mean, just, you know, blah, blah. I mean, just horrible things. And I was like, all right, I got up and got my clothes on. I said, I'm going over there, God, and I'm going to clean this place out. Not lying, I'm, I'm, that was my intention. And I put my hand on the door to my room and the Holy Ghost came in that room. And I said, no, God, please, I just, just once. 
I, Lord, please. I mean, could it have been going on? I said, Lord, please. Just, and and I, I really felt that, that tremendous power of God. And I was like, I mean, I was weeping. I'm like, God, no, please don't do it. I'll, I'll let me. Just come on, Lord. I, I promise I'll repent tomorrow. But just let me. I mean, tonight, I mean, you know, vengeance is mine, but Jeff needs some. I, I was young, and I thought I was somebody. I was, I was going to go get me some. And, and I went back in that bed, and over the next four months, every single person in that room came to me. Hear what I'm saying? Because I was willing, never said a word about it to any of them. They had no idea that I heard what they said. But every single, there were six people in that room, every one of them came to me asking me to pray for a situation in their life. Sometimes, understand, what you want to do, right, and what God wants to do aren't the same thing. Did it hurt? I'm telling you. I, Brother Sherwood, it's been a long time. It's been 30-some years ago. I'd, today, I'd have the same anger. I'd want to go in there and, you know, and just take care of business because that's who we are in humanity. But their faith was unshakable. It really was. But the fourth principle that comes from persecution is they left the result in God's hands. And that's the hardest thing to do. That's the most difficult. They said, you know what? He's able. King, he's able to deliver us out of your hand. But if he does not, be it known to you, O king, that we ain't still are not going to bow down and worship that image. Right? So if God was not willing, if God did not deliver them, they were willing to die for righteousness' sake. And that's a difficult place. That's a hard place. And so I wanted to maybe share some different perspective because I know us. I know us as the people of God. I know us as people. And some of you in this room are not going to like what I've got to say. But what is, what is the difference between this and self-defense? What does the Bible say about, about this ability? Because many of the people in this room, I know that you, you're locked and loaded. You're ready to rock and roll, right? You know, you, you think you're black ops people and all that, you know. You, you think you're Navy SEALs hiding in the basement, whatever. But, but the Bible does not give us an all-encompassing statement on self-defense. Some passages seem to speak of God's people being pacifists, but I don't find that always to be the case. And so there is given to us some windows of proper understanding of self-defense, some wisdom. Exodus chapter 22, verses 2 and 3, if a thief is caught breaking in at night and has struck a fatal blow, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. But, there's always a but, if it happens after sunrise, the defender is guilty of bloodshed. And so there's two basic principles that I, I see here in Scripture, the right to own property and the right to defend property. And so the full exercise of the right to defend depends on the situation, the circumstance. Now, I've had some time. This, this little lesson has been stewing in the pot for a minute or two. I think I froze it and thought it and heated it and froze it and thought it. So understand this, and, and so you may disagree with me, but I want you to understand that there's a different perspective because many of us were taught that if somebody, right, I mean, some of you got the sign up in your house that don't come on, you know, you got the sign up that says, please, please don't come on the property, we're tired of hiding the bodies. Okay? And you feel like it's your right and your privilege, and I get it, right? All right? And so my point is don't be too, too quick to use that deadly force. I can't imagine, I can't think of one thing that I own. I can't think of one possession that I have that is worth the life of another person. I'm just being honest. I have to come to this place of maturity. Why? Because there's a blessing in being persecuted for righteousness' sake. But there is nothing, there's no mandate in Scripture that says I can kill you dead if you're trying to steal my television. Now, let me, give you, let me give you some perspective so you can see maybe where we're at as a country. The signers of the Declaration of Independence 
just a, a few generations from the first settlers of our nation, the people that came to, to America to escape religious persecution. They had a, a commitment to freedom, to religious freedom, and it was woven into this American culture. And this was supposed to guarantee for us through the Constitution a right to bear arms, right? But by this, here's what I understand. If you go back and look at history, by the end of World War II, American attitudes toward religion, they, they began to shift right after World War II. Our courts, our educational system, our entertainment industry, our legislative bodies, they all seemed, after World War II and continuing on, to adopt a bias against religion. I'm not talking about religion, but I'm, that, that, that's how the world would, would, would see it, but it's really against the principles of the Word of God. And so about the time that I was born in the 1960s, small but vocal groups of militant atheists began to argue what the Constitution really merits. Now, I'm not, I'm not preaching the Constitution this morning. Freedom from religion rather than freedom of religion. And so here we are, a short 60 years later, and we live in a secular culture. We're governed by secularists. We're driven by worldviews, views that are in direct conflict with biblical principles. And so in our lifetime, we've seen the simplest of shifts. We've seen this, this shift from where uh, uh, religious faith was once only not only permitted but encouraged, and now there are social pressures and even legal sanctions against expressing your faith. So understand, we're going to come to a place we're going to come to a place in America. Pastors said this, and I believe this. We are going to face some level of persecution that is greater than what we do now. And I'm telling you, as a gun owner, as someone who believes in the right to defend, right? I'm just going to tell you, if somebody wants to come in my house and take what I got, I'm not going to shoot them. Not going to. Brother Vahaska was giving me grief the other day. We were talking. I, I bought a pistol a few years ago. I bought a handgun. I've got all kinds of hunting guns, right? All kinds of stuff for, for the sport of hunting. But I've never owned a handgun. I bought one. I have shot it literally one time. I shot one magazine. I never picked it up. I move it around. I pull it out once a month and look at it, put it back in the case. I bought it for self-defense. And, and I, honestly, it won't do me any good. I'd have to get up, turn on a light, find my glasses, get the key, open it up, and load it. I, I'm dead. No good at all. Got it. I understand that. It's not going to do me any good. We've already got proof that my big bad dog will sleep through the whole event. We got broken into. He never even woke up. My opinion, my feeling, something that I own is not worth another human's life. Now, it's just my wife and I. To defend her, well, maybe a different story, right? My grandchildren, my children, a different story. I, I, I get that. I grasp that. But understand the context of what the Word of God is talking about. And put that in some balance in your perspective. You can never get a life back. You can never get that back for, for whatever that reason is. And so the, the same thing is, is that if I'm going to face that persecution, I don't, want it be, be, I don't want it to be because I'm defending something that I value. You understand? Uh, no matter what value I ascribe to it, I don't want that, that result. But if I'm going to give my life, I want to be able to do it willingly for the right reason. You understand? They, they talk about, they talk about the, the soldier that goes to war, and they're not giving their life for their country. They're fighting for the person next to them. Listen, the reason that we should, we should desire to get to that place, the apostles, go back and read it. I, I shake my head. I'm like, what is wrong with these people? They were excited. We got beat up for preaching Jesus. Okay? Last time I got beat up, Brother Bruce, was a few years ago, but it still hurt. It was days and days of healing, right? You understand? Some of you never been tuned up real good. I always had a big mouth. I got it once or twice. I know I'm trying to make a little fun of this, but the truth is, would you really be willing 
Are you mature enough that if somebody comes in and says, we're shutting you down, what are you going to do? I'm asking us because I, I, I go to church here and I know us and I understand the anger that we have over the politicization of our society and what's going on in our culture, that anger. Would we have that same anger? Listen, I'm not going to fight over who's in what office or what. I'm not going to argue over legislation. Understand, I, I get it. I got my opinion. I feel strongly about it, but I'm not going to propagate that. I've got one message of peace, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. Peace is not going to come through legislation. I don't need to defend the gospel with a gun. At every situation, there's always a Peter. When they got in the garden and they came to get Jesus, the fisherman pulls out a sword. Really? Where have you been hiding that at, Pete? Come on, dude. Really? And he whacks off the guy's ear. And Jesus said, no, no, that's not how this works. And I'm trying to help some people with this understanding. We live in a secular society. They do not believe what you believe. They do not feel like you feel. And don't let what they feel come into here and affect. I'm not... Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying we should allow somebody in here with a gun and shoot people dead because they're angry or mad or misguided or something stupid like that. But if they came in here and they said, you're going to stop preaching or we're going to kill you all for the sake of righteousness, that's a different story. And we've got to have that. Does that make sense? Does that make perspective? If somebody's just angry because of somebody's wife or brother or cousin or sister or aunt or uncle-in-law, whatever, and they come in here with a gun, that's a whole different deal. I'm all about that kind of vengeance. And I think that's a common sense approach. But at the same time, when they come in and they say, we're going to kill you if you don't stop that. I ain't stopping that. (laughs) That's where that comes from. And that's why this principle doesn't make sense to humanity. Well, you know, I mean, you know. If, if James and John and Mark had gotten them some guns, they would have had a different outcome. Jesus said, my disciples are not going to fight. Why? Because their kingdom is not of this world. And it's so hard. It's so difficult for us as the people of God to live in a world and in a kingdom. And we're cohabitating in, in, in unequal realms. And we're dealing, we're dealing with stuff that really has an effect on us. You know? I, I, I've given some consideration to it. I don't want a concealed carry. I don't want to carry a gun. I don't have the desire to shoot somebody. If you want my truck, go take it. I'll get another one. Amen. You may have to take it, but it's fine. Uh, you, okay, there has to be some balance and understanding to this. But those Hebrews, I'm trying to challenge somebody because this is a challenge. This is a difficult place for us to be. And for some of you, this is more difficult than others because you don't want to hear this. You're like, no, no, uh-uh, uh-uh. You come to my house, I'm going to shoot you on the porch and drag your body inside. I know, I know where I'm at this morning, Right? But you've got to recognize that around our world today, there are people, the countries under Islamic rules, that anybody who confesses the name of Christ, they kill them. Dead. Right? And so it's not, it's not convenient. There, there are brutal forms. But I think we should understand that the, the, in the New Testament, they celebrated persecution. I, I'm really trying to wrap my head around that. I get it. I don't like that. I didn't like it when it happened to me. I've never liked it when I've been criticized or mocked or put down or or belittled for what I believe. And that has happened to me, and hopefully it has happened to you. Because according to the Word of God, it will happen. Whether you hear about it, know about it, it's going to happen. People are going to criticize you. Oh, you're one of them people. I, I absolutely am one of them people. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God to salvation. And I can't be ashamed of that. Understand that. But at the same time, we have to have that. That's maturity. I'm not seeking out the destruction of someone else over some worldly thing, right? When the rapture comes, I don't care what happens to my stuff. 
we're, we're at that place now. We've hit that place in life, and I, I've been trying to convince my wife, honey, we're making this easier on the kids. She's like, what do you mean? I'm like, we got to get rid of all this stuff. She's like, why? It's because when, when we die, somebody's got to come get rid of all this stuff, so let's just get rid of it now, make it less of a workload on it. She's on the other side. She's like, let's leave it for them. They'll... <laughs> a lot of people think that political activism is the answer. Evangelicals, they're, 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 they're looking at these cultural shifts, and they're, they want to boycott, they want to demonstrate, they want to do public protests, get out the vote campaigns. They want all this different, uh, you know, angry rhetoric, all this stuff, right? And all of this stuff has not been effective, Right? These tactics have done, these tactics have done little to advance the, the gospel. But here's the thing: there's no biblical mandate for that type of approach. Right? The Bible calls for a different, a different response. Here's what Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verse 14: Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. I, I want to bless them. You with me? You understand what I'm saying? But listen, every, every carnal mind, not just mine, will instantly suggest reasons why this is a bad idea, but it's written in the imperative form. It means it's a vital enforcement. This is a command not to be passive, or not to be passive, but it's a command to be active. And so we're commanded to bless our persecutors. That definitely feels counterintuitive or counterculture to me. I'm not even sure that I'm mature enough to accept that. But the scripture says it this way in Luke chapter 6 love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those that curse you. And pray for those who despitefully use you and abuse you. What? That's hard. You creep, you go to that apostolic church, oh, bless you. Oh, I want to bless you so good. Woo! Me and Jesus is about to bless something up in here. How do you feel when somebody rips you apart? I've got a mandate. The, the, the Greek verb is, is active and transitive. It means I've got to actively do something. What Jesus said, pray for them. Oh God, fire, brimstone, hail. Open the ground like you did for Moses, God. I've destroyed the entire lesson. It's difficult. It's not easy. But here's the point that I want to make. If it was easy, everybody could do it. And these were not just words. Because here's the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 23, verse 34, while he was on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Amen. And that's the hard part. I, I want to be mature. I want to have that balance in my life. I want to have that right perspective. But it starts with having a poor spirit. It starts with having a right perspective over sin. It goes into meekness and purity and all of those attributes that are built into my life and saying, God, correct me at this level, at that level, at that level, at that level. And when I get to the place where I'm being persecuted, then I can have the right spirit and the right attitude. And I can say, Lord, forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. They don't know. Because I don't know what would happen in your life I can tell you that my experience was that every one of those people, my husband left me, my baby's in the hospital, on and on and on, would you pray for me? They sought me out privately. They ripped me apart collectively, but they sought me out privately and wanted me to pray for them. Amen. I, I wanted to just choke them. Brother Sherwood, I had a hard time. It was difficult. These people were offensive to me. It was difficult to change my perspective when they came. But you know what? There's, there's a Holy Ghost in you that will automatically just kick in. And that mercy right, that's already built into that perspective. 
I remember laying hands on them and praying and feeling the presence of God in every one of those situations as I prayed for God to move on their behalf. We're not going to win our world through rhetoric. We're not going to win our world through campaigns. We're going to win our world at an altar. We're going to win our world by standing for truth and righteousness, and we're going to have to suffer some persecution. But I believe God has a window, a door, an opportunity for every person in this world to be saved. And I want to be a part of that and not in opposition to it. Amen. Let's, let's stand together. Sometimes it is easy to start on your destination without knowing the exact path that it takes to get there. To get to our destination, we need to follow the one who knows our predestined path. Be sure to subscribe and watch us every Sunday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Also, visit us at www.livinghopemd.com. I'm going to wait on you, Jesus. I'm going to wait on you, Jesus.